the primary one being that healthcare is becoming increasingly expensive. And so if you want to make a quick buck or you want to see significant shareholder value, the easiest way to do that is to find the edge cases, the most expensive, the most difficult surgeries, produce a new therapy, produce a new orthobiologic, produce a new surgical robot or something, and then turn around and sell it for millions of dollars, which people are willing to pay because this is so difficult that it has to take of a very specialized solution. Hey, it's Matt, and this is Pass the Secret Sauce. Hey, hey, everyone. So today we have Daniel Dudley on Pass the Secret Sauce. Daniel is the founder of Indago, which I can't even tell you how much respect I have for him with what they've accomplished so far. You'll hear the story as to what they've done with hardware. It's absolutely incredible. And if you've ever tried to create a piece of hardware, you know how difficult it is. So Daniel and his team at Indago have decided to approach the medical industry with new thoughts and new ideas on how to make different processes better. So you'll hear the story about their product that they are building right now that is very, very close to finally coming to reality. And this is five years into his journey with Indago. So again, hardware is incredibly difficult. Medical hardware is even more difficult. And then add all of that on top of trying to create something that hasn't really been done before. It's just, it's mind boggling, mind boggling some of the things that they probably have, have gone through. So again, if you're in hardware or you are interested in the medical uh, industry, you're going to want to listen to what Daniel has to say in today's episode of Pass the Secret Sauce. kind of changed throughout my, my life. One of the things that was interesting about my story is that it starts in the U.S. I was born in Houston, Texas, but then when I was 10, my father's job moved overseas. And so my dinner table conversation, well, I was, I was in primary school at the time, so not much of a conversation, but mm-hmm. you know, my, my parents were both working full-time. My father is a research physicist, and then my mother as a occupational therapist specializing in pediatrics, severe Down syndrome and autism. She was in Mm. private practice for herself, but we went from that and then myself and my brother, um, obviously young and in school, moving over to the Netherlands into a place where my mother had to um, take a break from practicing because of the language barrier. And my brother and I transitioned, went into a new school, an international school. And so it it's kind of a, an interesting dynamic. And then when, when I graduated from high school, my parents moved again to Western Canada. So, and, and then, you know, once, once that happened, my parents moved again a couple more times. I think that one of the things that would really have kind of been a through line in the, the dinner table would be a, a, a sense of, of, of family and 
conversation. I think, you know, my family, even to this day, is is one of the the ones that, you know, we always eat dinner together, regardless of what's going on. It's not even really a, a question of, hey, do you want to? It's, it's always there. And, and in that moment, we, we have a chance to connect and talk about things. My parents never really shied away from bringing up things that they were they were working on or, or thinking about and answering questions that my brother and I had, asking my brother and I what we were doing. So it was kind of a, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, but yeah, I would say that um, in, in a sentence, what was important or what was the, the dinner table was like when I was growing up was, you know, a sense of family, a sense of conversation. Everyone was there at the same time for or essentially the same amount of time, no one left early, and, and we just kind of connected and, and talked about what we had, what was going on in our lives. That's great. That's great. Where, whereabouts did you guys move to in, in Canada? I, I actually have family in Kamloops, if you're familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, so is. We, we were in Alberta, so okay. we were in Calgary in Western Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father works for a petroleum exploration company, one of the major ones, and so Houston, Texas, the Netherlands, Western Canada. Those are all obviously very much connected to the the oil patch. Yeah, yeah. What was it like when you moved to to the Netherlands? Were, were there a lot of English speaking? I know, I know that obviously your your mother ran into some some barriers there, but did you have to learn a new language too at at the early age? I did not. Um, I wish I had. The, the challenge with the Netherlands really is it's a very small country, the highest population density in Europe. It's about 12 million people in a country about twice the size of the greater Houston area. It's very dense. They do a phenomenal job of teaching what I'll call foreign languages to Dutch students. They start learning English in the equivalent of like a second grade. Okay. And another language, German, Italian, French, typically in fifth grade. So everyone speaks English and they want to practice their English. So so I never really was forced to learn Dutch, which is kind of a disappointing thing for me because yeah. I would have loved to have had a second language. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so you, you mentioned that your mother had her own practice. So you were exposed to entrepreneurialism and obviously you've, you've had quite a few different companies that, uh, that you've been part of as well. Do you feel like your upbringing, you know, the exposure of someone running their own business sort of gave you the, the groundwork for where you are today? Can you talk about any of the learnings maybe that you may have picked up on when you were, when you were a kid with that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's something that I do think about pretty often when it comes to entrepreneurship. My father's worked for the same company for almost 40 years now, so a lot of people look at that and say, well, you know, it's not, is entrepreneurialism in your blood, uh, so to speak. But when I do think about my upbringing, one of the things that does really stand out to me was the sense of independence that my parents really fostered in me. Starting when I, I got to the Netherlands in middle school through high school, there was a real sense that myself and my brother, we could take the bus, we could take the tram, we could take our bikes, we could go places. My parents had a, a level of comfort with that. And then I was a Boy Scout, got all the way uh, to and through Eagle Scouts. I um, got my Eagle Scout badge at 16. But my father, even though he was the Scoutmaster of the troop, one of the things that I remember very clearly was when I asked him for help with my Eagle Scout project, like so many sons asked their fathers, his response was, 
why would I help you? You know, this is your project. This is a big thing. It's on you to do it. If you want someone to help you hammer something, if you want someone to, you know, help you pick up some wood from the store, I'm happy to do that, but I'm not going to do this project for you. And that's really stuck with me for, for quite some time, especially given how you know, the stereotypes of a lot of people in my generation that, you know, the helicopter parents who really want to make sure that their kid, if they don't get a good grade, they'll talk to the teacher or something. My parents had a very different approach that it was really, you know, Daniel, this is your life. You should live it. You know, we have expectations of you. We have guardrails, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to let you do anything you want, but this, this sense that there really was a, a big push that I should, if I want things, I should do things for myself and that it was important for, it, it was important for me to do that. Uh, another interesting anecdote is I remember very clearly when I graduated from college or shortly thereafter, I was talking with my mother about my path, which has been varied um, and definitely not a straight line. And I had asked her, you know, I, I took a very different path than either of my parents or my brother in terms of what I wanted to do and the surety with which I was facing any sort of success. And she paused and looked at me and said, you know, your father and I talked about that and we just, we just knew it was going to work out. And that was another thing that kind of, I, I think about a lot that there was a sense that even though I've done a lot of things that have failed, <laughs> I've done a lot of things that have not failed, but not really succeeded. And I've, I've taken a number of risks whether or not in hindsight they were calculated or just impulsive, but that overall the, the average that, at least from my parents' perspective, is, you know, it'll work out. If mm -hmm. Daniel has, has got, got something and he'll, he'll make it through. That's great. Yeah, that, and, and it's great that you are able to reflect and realize those types of things, and, and your parents have sort of reflected and realize those those moves and thoughts that they had as well. So that that's great. That's great. Did you have any early entrepreneurial jaunts that you that you had? Were you the kid selling anything or trying to create something when you were when you were growing up at all? I wish I had a great story about how like I started a website or taught myself to code, but I really don't. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was I was a tremendous introvert when I was younger. I loved books and, and reading. I probably the person, I, I only had a, a handful of friends at any given time. But one thing that was kind of very true is that I've always been very driven mm -hmm. to do things when I put my mind to it. I was a decent student, but I'm very easily distracted. So I wasn't, a, I was never the best student. Mm -hmm. But if there was something I was passionate about or interested in, especially when it came to books, I really kind of dove headfirst into it. Eventually, I think around the same, around when I was 16, I, I made a conscious effort to, to look at, you know, being an introvert and try to be more extroverted. And I, it's something that I work on very hard to, to try to put myself out there because I, I made a decision that that was something that I wanted for my life. And about that time, there were a couple of things that I was, I was involved in. I started a kind of volunteer, not 
really a nonprofit sort of thing, mm -hmm. but raised a bunch of money for War Child, which was mm -hmm. a organization that helps with child soldiers and kind of issues they're in. I raised money for Locks of Love. I did a lot of volunteer work. I also uh, ran a school, ran the school newspaper, helped run a, a literary magazine, helped start a school newspaper. So I definitely got very involved in things. Mm -hmm. And even if I wasn't always the person kind of sitting, holding my hand up and saying, you know, we're doing this now. I was very often the person who, if something was going to happen, I was the second person there standing up and saying, yeah, no, like, let's make that happen. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So, so talk a little bit about what, what you do right now at, at Indigo or what Indigo actually does. Yeah, so that's a great question. Indago, and uh, I know it Indago. looks like it's Indigo. It's, yeah, it's... Uh, one of the nuances of naming, we didn't think uh, how easy it would be to mispronounce, but Indago is the company that myself and two others, two brothers, Eugene and Ilya, founded back in 2015 with this idea that there have been a number of areas in the operating room and healthcare in general where innovation and technology have either really stagnated or been abandoned from a research and development level for a couple of reasons. The primary one being that healthcare is becoming increasingly expensive. And so if you want to make a quick buck or you want to see significant shareholder value, the easiest way to do that is to find the edge cases, the most expensive, the most difficult surgeries, produce a new therapy, produce a new orthobiologic, produce a new surgical robot or something, and then turn around and sell it for millions of dollars, which people are willing to pay because this is so difficult that it has to take of a very specialized solution. What that's meant is run-of-the-mill surgeries have kind of been left behind. A, a case study that a mentor of mine once showed me was he, uh, this is a company that he founded that eventually went public, but they were looking to develop a new therapy for cholesterol, and they had basically two markets. They could go after tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people globally and sell this cholesterol drug that helps people with, you know, moderate to high cholesterol, or they could go after like a thousand people and help people with cholesterol that would, that was so high, it was going to kill them. Like it, they 100% mortality rate. And he asked myself and a number of others to look at the various options and say what, what to do. And most of us, looked for the the large market or somewhere in between and what he did with his company and was very successful doing this was he went after that small market because he said look you know we we know there's a there's a market here they're desperate for this and we can provide a real value to their life and, and make a lot of money doing it mm -hmm. and that has been the overall sort of approach that medicine has taken there's a lot of good reasons why to do that. I mean, it's pushed innovation forward for these patients that are so dependent on healthcare, which is great. But from our perspective, and this has to do a bit with our history, it, it was really laying, it, it illuminated an inefficiency in what we thought existed in healthcare. And that was, if you look at the broadest types of procedures being performed, in our opinion, and data backs us up, arthroscopies, so knee surgeries, shoulder surgeries, 
there are millions of them being performed every year across the U.S., and that's a number that's just rising and will continue to rise both here and globally, but no one's really touching it because what they have works. It's relatively simple. It's relatively low cost, and it's an elective surgery. You know, if you have someone comes in, they, you know, need a surgery, it'll take 20 minutes, they're 85 years old, you know, they'll, they'll fix the meniscus tear in the knee, they'll send them on. There's, it, it's really not very, no one's getting excited about it, because it's, you can't write, there's just, there's not a lot there. But the net effect of this is as time has gone on, it just means that the, the, the advances in technology have not kept up. And so, Indago was really founded as a company to look, identify those areas, and address them, to bring in clinically beneficial technologies to these areas to really advance them to where we feel that they should be. Um, we like to say we're, we're creating the operating room of the future. Virtus Technology is a custom business software solution provider. Are you tired of manual entry into an old system that creates more work than it helps? Does your company suffer from constant pain and frustration around its business processes? Do you spend a lot of time and money trying to hunt information down or figure out what is happening in your business? Virtus Technology can help solve all of this. We evaluate your current processes and then create custom software or mobile apps to automate and streamline your business process, eliminating a lot of those pains and frustrations. Unlike other systems, our goal is to digitize your current processes and systems so that your staff's learning curve is very small. If you're ready to take your business operations to the next level, give Virtus Technology a call today. But it's really we're creating the operating room that we should have today but don't. And, and that's, that's kind of what the company does. And what I do specifically is I manage the, the business side of it. So my, my position technically is the co-founder and chief operating officer. Mm -hmm. So I manage all of the stuff associated with kind of running any sort of business, the taxes, the finances, legal, modeling, strategic planning. I have great partners in a CFO that we work with who helps me in areas where I'm not as experienced. And then I also provide kind of strategic direction on the marketing and sales, which is more of my background. So if, if, there's, if there's anything not connected to actually developing a device mm -hmm. from a technical perspective, because I'm not a technical person, that's what I, I manage. I manage the, everything but technical and regulatory. Got it. Got it. So you live where Cleveland Clinic is, which is fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about how you have helped launch the company or how you've helped market the company or get some of, you know, get some of the, the clients that you've had uh, thus far, or are you, are you actively looking for clients at this point? Yeah. So we're in an interesting place. I would say I've learned a ton about medical technology and um, the, the medical device industry since launching this company about five years ago. And where we are right now is may be surprising to some, especially for those who are unfamiliar with medicine, and that's we are a pre-revenue device that is legally prevented from selling or marketing anything. And if you're more familiar to tech startup or, or something in the consumer space, that may sound crazy. Five years in, no money, no ability to do that. How does it work? 
looks very simple, and that's we've, we've been developing a device for use in surgery. In order for us to, to sell it or marketing, market it, we need clearance from FDA. Specifically, we need a type of clearance called a 510K, and that clearance, colloquially, most people assume it to be an indication that the device is good, that it works, that it's safe, which it, it is all of those sense, all of those things. But legally, it just means it's something that you can sell and market. So we're not there yet. So from the perspective of what have I done to, to market the device, all I've really done right now is created a story, the story that we then have been telling. In many ways, what I've been focused on for the last five years has been working with my co-founder, Eugene, our CEO, to craft the narrative and evolve the narrative of our company for our investors. We're now into our third round of financing, and that's been a lot of where my efforts and thoughts have been, is how do you find people in a marketplace that is kind of suspicious of medical devices and there's a reason why investors don't like medical devices that's much longer than this podcast would take to kind of flesh out. But to find people who are, are instinctively opposed or not terribly excited about investing in medical devices and tell them a story of why what we're doing is exciting, why it makes a difference, and why even though we're shunning a lot of these trends in more expensive healthcare, more specialized healthcare, why we've chosen to do that, and more importantly, why that's the correct decision for us to make. Got it, got it. So what is next for Indago? What are you, what are you guys concentrating on right now? What's, what's the next step for you guys? I think that the next step for us, the next step for Indago is, in many ways, it's also the first step. It's what we've been working on this past five years, and that's launching our first device, Arthur Free, onto the US market. We are very close to the end of product development. It's been a difficult, complicated journey, but we're at the final stage of that. We can see the finish line. We need to essentially button up the last few remaining challenges that we have and then submit to the FDA for clearance, following some testing. And then we turn around and, and we launch the product, uh, looking at launching it in early 2021. That's the immediate next step. But the step following that is two-pronged. One, it's to determine what the next product, the next focus area we have will be. Mm -hmm. We are excited about continuing down the path that we started with Arthur Free, but there are so many other opportunities to find areas where there's a disconnect between the technology available today and the technology being used by leading clinicians. At the same time, we also have to switch the focus of the company, which right now is almost exclusively research and development, into one that is more focused on sales marketing and commercialization. So at the same time that we'll be determining the next technology that we will be looking to, to fundamentally change or address or shift the paradigm in some capacity, we will also be spinning up this previously non-existent portion of the company to focus on the, the sales and marketing piece of 
the R3 free technology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and are you able to talk a little bit about what the R3 three does or is that not? Yeah. Um, I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, the, yeah, there's actually a patent that we just had issued about it. So if anyone's interested, they can look us up or look my name up, search for patent, and you'll probably find it. But Arthur Free is the world's first, or as far as I know, <laughs> the world's first fully wireless, minimally invasive surgical camera. Wow. So basically what we've done is we've taken a tried and true technology that of an arthroscopic camera used, as I said, in millions of surgeries a year and taken the wires out of it. This may sound trivial, but it's been a challenge that's faced the arthroscopic industry since the inception of video arthroscopy in the late 70s. In order to provide light to a small scope, which is inserted into a joint, hence the minimally invasive part, they use a large fiber optic cable connected to an external light source. And in order to get the video out, they use a thick video cable connected to a, a video box. And those two things as of yet have been real stumbling blocks to changing the technology. If you put in a light, it's either too big or it's too hot or it's too power hungry. And the trade-offs there are pretty intense. From the video side, it's, it's very difficult to transmit high def or now 4K video in a place that is already full of a lot of electronics, so you're seeing a lot of interference, and where you need to have seamless, effectively zero latency. If I'm sitting at home watching Netflix and something starts buffering, well, that's fine. You know, maybe I'll, I'll put it on pause, I'll, I'll get another beer or use the restroom, but if you're in surgery and you have a shaver inside someone's knee and the screen starts buffering, well, then you have the potential to have very severe and real consequences to patients. So the, the idea of wireless in an operating room has been very scary. Though it's, though it's exciting and the, the, the possibility has been there, it's been very challenging for the industry to find something that they feel confident in, and more importantly, the FCC and FDA will approve because of this, this challenge. You know, Bluetooth is not approved. Wi-Fi is not approved. There are a number of other things, Zigbee, LoRa, tons of different kind of transmission modalities that have had their moments and gone away. And for one reason or another, the vast majority of them are just not possible. So our real innovation with Arthur Free was finding, was threading the needle, so to speak, on all of those points. Really interesting. Identifying, in our, and in our case, creating a novel way of producing light that solved the problems, that was low power enough, it produced low enough heat, and it was small enough that we could use it to find a transmission modality that was stable enough and was approved for use in the operating room and to find a battery that we felt comfortable with. One of the, the real challenges that we ran into about two years into starting this company was if you remember Samsung made a, I believe it was the Note 7, mm -hmm. phones started exploding. Mm -hmm. We were using a lithium ion battery in a medical device. 
And if you come to someone and say, look, we have this lithium ion battery and we've tested it and it's great. And then the doctor goes, yeah, but my son's phone just exploded. You end up in a very challenging position. We actually had to reset a lot of our relationships because we had suppliers pull out of the entire supply chain. Wow. They said, what are you using this battery for? And we said medical devices. And they said the liability is insane. We said, well, you don't, you don't have the liability. You know, it's, it's passing through a couple of other things. And plus, we're, we know what we're doing. We've, we've tested this. And they said, we're shutting down this division. Like, we're not even touching that. So that was a real challenge that, you know, we had to address. Mm-hmm. That's been one of the, the exciting road bumps, I would say, that we've hit. But that was, that was the, the last piece was finding, you know, this battery that pulled everything together and then optimizing it in a way that allowed us to sterilize it and still maintain the level of quality and safety that we knew would be critical. Wow. Wow. So when you're going through and, and sourcing all of these different products, are you, are you going to Asia to get some of these things or are there local suppliers that are, are you know, working with you know, specifically medical devices that have different properties than you know, just going to a, a factory that creates batteries? That's a great question. And I wish there was an easy answer where I could say yes or no. The, the real thing that we've ended up doing is kind of all of the above. Uh, one of the first partnerships that we made was with a large company called Arrow Electronics. They're one of the largest component distributors in the world. Mm-hmm. And we were able to use a sales rep that we were connected with there who brought us into a program to essentially leverage the supply chain of Arrow to get us access to a lot of components. Mm. The other thing that's been very interesting is that we're in this in- embedded hardware sort of space. And it's very different than, say, if I was a, an Etsy store or a Shopify store and I said, you know what, I want to do some custom, custom T-shirts and I can go to China and say, hey, print me some custom T-shirts. Or I could go down the road to Jack Prince here in Cleveland and say, print me some T-shirts and then I would sell them. Because we have so many different components that are made by so many different suppliers, if we get down to a fundamental level, if we take like one component, integrated chip or something, it may be manufactured by, or it may be sold by a U.S. company. The mm-hmm. IP may be owned by a U.S. company, may be assembled in the Netherlands, but the PCB was made in Taiwan, and then it comes to us through Spain. Like, it's very interconnected and globally. So the base components, they come from all over the world. But what I will say, and this has been intentional, is when we're talking about sub-assemblies or when we're talking about more finished products, interim finished products, like we got all the chips together and then we put them on a board, for instance, or we got all of the plastic and we injection molded. For that, we could have gone to China. We could have gone to somewhere else in in East Asia, but we've made it a very conscious decision to stay in the domestic US and wherever possible to stay in Ohio. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One is a, um, an intellectual property liability problem. Mm-hmm. There, I think that China is an amazing country. I love China. I think that there's a, a ton of awesome things that are happening there, but it is an undeniable fact that intellectual property is very often stolen or modified from Chinese factories. So that's a risk that you will take if you're manufacturing in China. And it's a risk that we didn't want to take. But, and more importantly, 
if we're manufacturing here and if we're manufacturing in Ohio, one, it supports Ohio. And, you know, I'm not from Ohio. Both of my co-founders were born in the Soviet Union, you know, but we like Ohio. We, we want to support Ohio. We're proudly based in Cleveland. And so that's a good thing. But it also means that if we have a problem, say there's an issue with a part that gets injection molded, or there's an issue with a PCB or something, in a half a day, I can be anywhere in Ohio and talking to the exact person who made that part. No language barrier, no travel barrier. I can jump in my car at four in the morning and by noon be literally anywhere in the state, uh, and often quite a bit sooner than that. So this, this idea of access is, is critical to us. You know, we're a small company. We know what we know. We think we know what we don't know, but we did want to say that when it comes to the hardware, if there are any challenges, if we see anything like that, we want to be able to get to that end supplier and, and solve that. That was, that was very important to us, especially as we're looking to kind of move and, and be agile. Yeah, that's smart. That's smart. You know, I, I feel like we could probably go down a thousand different paths with, with different stories and how you guys tackled things. So uh, maybe sometime in the future, we can have you on again. Uh, but if someone wanted to learn more about Indago or you, uh, how, would they, how would you suggest that they get in touch with you? That's a great question. I think that the, if you wanted to learn more about Indago, the easiest way to do that would to be to look at our website, uh, indago.io, when it is relaunched shortly. <laughs> right now, there's not a lot of information on us, but the, the best way to get in contact to me would be probably to email me. I can provide my email address. It's just daniel at indago.io. And, you know, I, I love talking with people about ideas that they have. I'm a big supporter of student entrepreneurship. Um, and I'm also a big believer in the idea that everyone has something to offer, um, regardless of, you know, who you are or where you are. I've, I've met people at bus stops um, mm -hmm. who had great ideas who I ended up connecting with years later down the line. Um, and I've, I've also just kind of like wandered through the airport and, and talked to people in lounges who, you know, I was able to help in, in some other capacity. So I, I love talking to people, whoever, whenever. I really believe that if I can offer anything to anyone, I'm happy to do it. And I don't really ever look for, a, I'm not a, not really a transactional sort of person. So if I help you, it's not like you help me. I take really a very long view on a lot of this that like if I help you and something works out, it will work out for me in the end. Love it. I love it. That's, that's, that's the way that I wish everyone approached things. It's certainly what I, I subscribe to as well. So, but, uh, but Daniel, this has been great. And again, I, I, I feel like there's a lot more that we can uncover and unpack with your story or your experience. Uh, so again, I guess until we chat again, again, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.